910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. At Proverbs 910 Ministries, we are dedicated to taking out the trash of false teaching and replacing it with biblical truth. Welcome back. When I think about some of the otter passages of scripture, one that always comes to my mind is a passage found in Genesis 18, where Jesus pays a visit to Abraham with two angels with him. And the two angels leave to head to the city of Sodom to carry out God's plans and destroy the city for their gross sin. What follows is an exchange between Jesus and Abraham where it seems like Jesus is willing to barter and possibly change his plans for Sodom to appease Abraham. So, Chris, let's start out as we've been doing with this series. We'll read the passage, we'll get some necessary background information, and then we'll answer a lot of questions that the passage raises. Sounds good. So here's the scripture. It's Genesis 18, 22 to 33, under the caption, Abraham intercedes for Sodom. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. This passage causes us to ask several questions, such as, why does Jesus engage in a back and forth with Abraham and not just put him in his place like he does to Job? And since he engages in a back and forth, does that mean that God can, under certain circumstances, change his mind? Is God ever willing to change his plans if we ask him to? Is it ever appropriate to barter with God? Is God ever willing to bend to our will? And of course, there's the question of why is this passage in the Bible? So Chris, let's start putting this passage into context and filling in some background information because there's a lot. Okay. Jesus and two angels, that's the men mentioned at the beginning of the passage, 
visit Abraham for Jesus to tell Abraham by the same time the following year that Abraham and Sarah will have a son. Abraham bows to them, worships Jesus, washes their feet, and prepares a meal for them. Afterwards, the two angels set out for the city of Sodom while Jesus hangs back with Abraham, seemingly debating whether he should tell Abraham what's about to happen. Jesus does tell Abraham the plan. And it is then that this exchange between the two takes place. But there are a lot of gaps to fill in here. So let's start with how we know it was the pre-incarnate Jesus who was there with Abraham. Rose? Well, even before Jesus was physically born of Mary, he did make appearances on earth. Sometimes the appearance was just in spirit, like with Moses in the burning bush. And sometimes it was an actual physical appearance, like here with Abraham. These are called theophanies. The definition of a theophany is the tangible manifestation to mankind by God. Jesus did come to earth before and even after his physical ascension to heaven. He appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. He appeared to John at Patmos. So just to teach you some fancy words, the term theophany usually applies to Jesus's appearance before his physical birth and the appearance after his ascension are usually called Christophanies. And that's mostly because after Jesus's incarnation, his people knew it was him making the appearance. But the words theophany and Christophany really can just be used interchangeably. They mean the same thing. Yeah, while there's no question that Jesus's appearances in the New Testament are actually Jesus, sometimes in the Old Testament, it's hard to know if it's Jesus or just an angel appearing. And that's because the text usually just says angel of the Lord for both. But there are some clues to tell the difference between the two. The most obvious is this one in the Genesis 18 passage, when the text tells us outright that it's God appearing. Verse one of chapter 18 says, the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. But when it's not obvious, there are other indicators we can look for. Usually, whenever an angel or angels appear to someone in the Bible, the people fall flat on their face in fear, but then that fear is followed by worship. If it's just a regular angel, they will stop the person or people from worshiping them. And they'll say something like, they too are just servants of God and not worthy of worship. But if it's Jesus, he allows the worship. Right. Another clue is to look at how the angel is described and what their purpose is in coming. Regular angels usually announce why they're there. Their mission is usually to deliver a message from God to someone. For example, in Daniel chapter 9, the angel Gabriel tells Daniel he was there to give Daniel a prophecy. And then later we see Gabriel appearing to Mary, telling her that she found favor with God and she's going to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Of course, that's Jesus. And one last clue is that when it is pre-incarnate Jesus, he speaks with authority that only God can have. And often, somewhere in the passage, he will make himself known as God. In Exodus 3, verse 2, it says, an angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a burning bush. Then in verse 6, it says, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And all of these are evident in this passage from Genesis 18, even besides verse one blatantly telling us it's God. Jesus accepts the worship that Abraham offers. He certainly speaks with authority 
that an angel never would have. And then several verses later, he identifies himself as the Lord. Okay, so we've established that this is the pre-incarnate Jesus that has the back and forth with Abraham. Right. And before we look at the back and forth, let's fill in some more information about Abraham and Sodom. Let's start with Abraham. Abraham is considered the father of the Israelites. Faithful Jews were called the sons and daughters of Abraham. In fact, Abraham is not just the central figure in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament also, as we see and mentioned several times. Matthew, whose gospel was written to the Jews, traces Jesus's lineage back to Abraham. In the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus said when Lazarus died, he was carried up to Abraham's side in heaven. Acts 7 and Hebrews 11 recount the great faith of Abraham. As Hebrews 11, 8 says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Paul also mentions Abraham in Galatians and Romans, and James talks about him and about how Abraham's works, namely being willing to sacrifice Isaac, showed that he was a man of great faith. So Abraham's a big deal in the Bible. That might cause us to think if anyone was going to be allowed to barter with God, it would be him, but not so fast. Abraham is a giant in the faith. But it's not because of anything Abraham did. It's because of what God accomplished through him. Before God chose Abraham as the patriarch of his people, Abraham was a pagan from a pagan family, married to a pagan woman, his half-sister Sarai, and was living in a pagan town in the nation of Babylon. That's the Ur of Chaldea. God chose Abraham to fulfill his purposes. Abraham did absolutely nothing to merit that choice. That's absolutely right. Now, remember when I first heard that, I was so shocked. <laughs> but it's true. He wasn't even seeking God. Genesis 12, 1 to 3 tells of Abraham's calling. And here's the scripture. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's the end of the scripture. You know, one thing that I love is that whenever God calls someone in the Bible, whether it's Abraham or Moses or David or any of the prophets or the apostles or Paul or anybody, he never asks them, would you like to be part of my plan and my kingdom? <laughs> there is no asking involved, not at all. There's no choice on their part. He calls and commands and they answer. Just one more thing that shows that God is sovereign. And of course, everyone that God calls, even up to us, wouldn't give that calling up for anything in the world, which is one more thing that shows God's love and care for his children. That's right. God chose Abraham to be the first patriarch of a people God chose to be his people. Like we said, Abraham didn't earn that privilege any more than the people God chose earned it. It was purely God's choice. Now, to be fair, what we can say about Abraham, though, is that he was faithful and he was obedient and did exactly what God asked him to do. 
most of the time. He picked up and left everything he knew, not knowing where God was leading him or having any idea what God's plan for him was. So he did have incredible faith in God, and that never wavered. But he certainly wasn't sinless. No, he certainly wasn't. He lied twice, saying that his wife, Sarah, was his sister and not his wife because he was afraid of getting killed or mistreated on account of her beauty. And instead of waiting on God's promise for a son with Sarah, he went along with Sarah's bad, bad plan for him to have a baby with her maidservant, Hagar, whom she acquired as a result of Abraham's lie <laughs> that Sarah was the sister. Just an interesting side note of how the consequences of sin can be long term. If you know the story, it was a disaster. The son Abraham had with Hagar named Ishmael went on to be the father of Islam, Christianity's biggest enemy. So while Abraham loved God alone and never looked to idols or false gods, he was far, far from perfect. So that discounts the notion that he in any way earned his right to barter with God in Genesis 18. Absolutely. And God certainly wasn't in the habit of bartering with his people. Look at Job. Job, who we're told at the beginning of the book of Job, was blameless and upright. You all probably know the story. God allows Satan to persecute Job, taking away all his wealth, killing his children, and causing him to break out in sores all over his body. God certainly wasn't letting Job get away with trying to negotiate with him. And if anybody would have had the right to in any way, it probably would have been Job. Yeah. Probably. But when Job questions why God would do what he was doing to him, God spends three chapters putting Job and his friends back in their place. God finishes up the reprimand in chapter 40 of Job in verse two, when he says, shall a fault finder contend with the almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Not a reprimand I'd want. No, me either. I hope I never hear those words. Paul, too, it puts believers in their place in several places in the book of Romans. He says in Romans 9, 20 to 22, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Okay, so... I think we've established that Abraham, while a faithful and godly man, did not do anything to earn the right to haggle with God over the fate of Sodom. So there must be another reason that it was not only allowed, but recorded in scripture for all to see for all eternity. But we'll have to have some more information to fill in before we get to that. So let's take a look at the object of the negotiation, which is the city of Sodom. Well, just a note to make, there was a team of 21 archaeologists, and they said that they found evidence that a city called Tal el-Haman, located near the lower Jordan Valley, kind of the northeast part of the Dead Sea, was destroyed by a meteor in 1650 BC. They claim this is the location of Sodom and Gomorrah. But Chris, as we pointed out last week, we got to be really careful with this stuff. 
It always sounds cool when a secular group or organization seems to find evidence that fits into the biblical narrative, but often there's not enough evidence to conclude that their findings were accurate. In this case, there's many biblical archaeologists and scholars who disagree that this is the location of Sodom and Gomorrah, and there are several reasons for the disagreement. But two big ones are first, if this were Sodom, Lot would have had to travel 27 miles overnight to run to the nearby town of Zoar, as scripture says he did. That seems like an impossibility. <laughs> Kinda. It's like a marathon. <laughs> Another big problem is the dating. The archaeologists say that the meteor destroyed the spot they're calling Sodom in 1650 BC. But according to scripture, Abraham died in roughly 1992 BC, over 340 years prior to Tal al-Hammam's destruction. The bottom line is that it's not important that scientists find evidence of Sodom or anything else in the Bible. If the Bible says it's true, we know that it's true. We just wanted to, once again, caution believers about jumping on all this stuff and sharing it and claiming it as truth. Often, these claims are riddled with problems, and in the end, finding proof of biblical events, while very cool, should not matter to us anyway. Right. So what does scripture say about Sodom? Well, it says a lot. Sodom was a real city, and it was really wicked. We first read about it in Genesis 10, when scripture talks about the lineage of Noah's three sons. Shem was in the godly line, meaning the lineage of Jesus. Noah's son Ham, however, was not only in the ungodly line, but Noah cursed Ham's son, Canaan, because of a sin Ham perpetrated on his dad. Ham's entire line and territories were pagan. Among them were Sodom and Gomorrah, according to Genesis 10, 19. In fact, the promised land was the land of Canaan. That's why God commanding the Israelites to completely destroy or completely drive out the inhabitants and take over the land for themselves was not ethnic cleansing, like we talked about last week. It was God's judgment being executed on them. According to Genesis 13, though, Sodom and the surrounding lands were beautiful, so much so that Abraham's nephew Lot chose to live near it. Genesis 13, 10 to 11 says, Lot took a long look at the fertile plains of the Jordan Valley in the direction of Zoar. The whole area was well watered everywhere, like the gardens of the Lord or the beautiful land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot chose for himself the whole Jordan Valley of the east of them. But Chris, beauty isn't everything. As Genesis 13, 13 tells us, the people of this area were extremely wicked and constantly sinned against the Lord. Yeah, you're right. Beauty is not everything. Sometime later, Sodom and Gomorrah find themselves overthrown and plundered by their enemies, and Abraham's nephew Lot is taken captive. Abraham saves Lot and recovers all of the plunder taken from Sodom. The king of Sodom thanks Abraham by offering to let him keep all of the plunder that he recovered. He just wants his people back. But Abraham, possibly being prompted by God, 
responds to the king of Sodom, I solemnly swear to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take so much as a single thread or sandal thong from what belongs to you. Otherwise, you might say, I am the one who made Abram rich. The entire Bible, although we see it most pronouncedly in the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation, divides people by godly and ungodly, believers and unbelievers, faithful and wicked. Abraham knew that Sodom was a pagan nation and was not about to let them get credit for anything that God was doing, nor rob God of any of his due glory. Right. We next see Sodom first in Genesis 18, where Jesus tells Abraham, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. It's the end of scripture. It's right after this that Abraham begins the negotiations. There's a lot to unpack in Jesus's words, and they will help us understand the meaning behind the go-between of Jesus and Abraham. But for right now, we're going to skip Jesus's words to finish up the information on Sodom. Genesis 19 records not only Sodom's destruction, but just how wicked the city really was. The two angels go into the city. Lot comes and gets them and brings them into his house to spend the night. You probably know this story. It's pretty grotesque. So I'll let scripture tell it. Genesis 19, 4 to 10 says, Before they, the angels and Lot, lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men, the angels, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Again, a lot to unpack here. Yes. And it is grotesque. You're right, Chris. There's been a lot of debate about whether Sodom was destroyed because of their sin of homosexuality or other sin, but it isn't really a debate. The city is wicked and homosexuality was just part of the wickedness. Yep. Notice verse 10, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. This wasn't some of the men of the city who came to rape the angels who were at Lot's house. This was all the men, young and old. In fact, it says all the people. So it could be probable that there were even women there too. This fact too is going to help us in understanding of the go-between between Jesus and Abraham. But again, we need to put it on hold just for a minute. 
we don't have time to go into the sin of Lot offering up his daughters in place of the angels, except to say that while hospitality was a very, very big deal in ancient times, and people took that responsibility for those under their roof very seriously, make no mistake here, Lot was sinning and proposing to do that with his daughters. It is obvious that while he was troubled by the evil of the city, some of the immorality in Sodom, which he now lived in instead of just next to, had rubbed off on him. He was part. Yeah, he was he was sinful. In fact, it rubbed off on his whole family, as we see later, when his wife disobeys the angels and looks back in longing at Sodom as it's being destroyed. And we see it again with his daughters who hatch a plot to get pregnant by their father. Another gross passage. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's crazy, horrendous. Yeah, It's, uh, it's crazy. Some of the things that are in the Bible. In in scripture, Lot is considered righteous, meaning belonging to God, but there's no doubt that he is sinning in this instance. Yeah, no doubt at all. So back to Sodom itself. After the incident we just read about in Genesis 19, Chris, that you read, the angels get Lot and his family out of Sodom and then God destroys it. As Genesis 19, 24 to 25 tells us, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all of the valley and all of the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground and the scripture. But this isn't the end of Sodom, at least metaphorically it isn't. In scripture, the city of Sodom becomes the symbol for the epitome of wickedness. In the book of Jeremiah, God accuses the prophets of Jerusalem of being as wicked as the people of Sodom and Gomorrah once were. Amos, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Zephaniah also mentioned Sodom, either to symbolize the evil that the Israelites were participating in or to talk about enemies like Babylon. And in the New Testament, Jesus, Paul, and Peter show how the destruction of Sodom was a foreshadowing of Jesus' second coming and God's final judgment on the world. Jesus says in Luke 17, 28 to 30, and the world will be as it was in the days of Lot. People went about their daily business, eating and drinking, buying and selling, farming and building until the morning Lot left Sodom. Then fire and burning sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Yes, it will be business as usual right up to the day when the son of man is revealed. And Peter in 2 Peter 2, 6-9, shows the comparison between Sodom and the final judgment. But he also alludes that part of Sodom's sin was the sin of homosexuality. He says, and I'm quoting 2 Peter, God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and turned them into heaps of ashes. He made them an example of what will happen to ungodly people. But God also rescued Lot out of Sodom because he was a righteous man who was sick of the shameful immorality of the wicked people around him. Yes, Lot was a righteous man who was tormented in his soul by the wickedness he saw and heard day after day. So you see, the Lord knows how to rescue godly people from their trials, even while keeping the wicked under punishment until the day of final judgment. 
He is especially hard on those who follow their own twisted sexual desire and who despise authority. Okay. So what we have so far is that Abraham did nothing to earn his position as patriarch of the faith and Sodom completely deserved the judgment and punishment that they received. So now let's go back to the, why is that in the Bible passage? And it's been so long, we will read it once more. Genesis 18, 22 to 33. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. So Chris, let's go back to the previous verses we read right before the verses you just read. And it's where it says, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Jesus says this as the angels were getting ready to set out. So we don't know if he said this to himself or if he said it to them. But it was definitely said and recorded for those of us who are reading this. In the Old Testament, the prophets, of which Abraham was one, Abraham was a prophet, but the prophets were given special revelation by God. There was no written Bible, so God's message had to be communicated this way. But now that Jesus has come to earth, all of God's people get special revelation through Jesus, who is the word of God. So, God's people get special revelation through scripture. I knew you were going there. (laughs) John Calvin says that these verses are a foreshadowing of the church. He says, 
We learn from the passage what experience also teaches, that it is the peculiar privilege of the church to know what the divine judgments mean and what is their tendency. When God inflicts punishment upon the wicked, he openly proves that he is indeed judge of the world. But because all things seem to happen by chance, the Lord illuminates his own children by his word, lest they should become blind with the unbelievers. And that's the end of his quote. So God is about to reveal to Abraham what his righteous judgment looks like. And he does the same for us in the pages of scripture. Never doubt for a moment that even if God's judgment on the wicked isn't happening now, it's coming for sure, because God does not and cannot allow wicked to continue forever. Definitely. So Jesus reveals to Abraham that because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, this is kind of an odd statement for God to make. I mean, God is omniscient, meaning he's all-knowing. There's no new knowledge that the Lord can get. He has it all and always has. That's why his knowledge is perfect. So obviously, he doesn't need to hear from an outcry of someone else that Sodom was wicked. And he didn't need to go there physically to see what they were doing. This is the same language that's used in the Tower of Babel narrative. And that says, the Lord came down to look on the city and the tower the people were building. In this case, in the case of Sodom here, we can say for sure that Jesus coming down had much more to do with Abraham than with needing to see the wickedness of Sodom in person. How about this outcry the Lord talks about? Who was it that was outcrying against Sodom? The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah could mean one of two things or both. It could have been prayers and cries and complaints that have reached heaven against Sodom by perhaps Lot or those who have suffered or been victims of or been forced to do some of the heinous acts by the wicked in Sodom and Gomorrah. Or as Matthew Henry says, sins are said to cry out when they are gross and manifest and impudent and such as highly provoked God to anger. He names only these two cities as being the most eminent in state and exemplary in wickedness. But under them, he includes the rest as appears by the story. And that's the end of the quote. Whether it's one or both, this shows the patience of God. He does not sit in heaven smiting people at will. He considers as everything. I would probably do. I know that I would do it and I would deserve it, but I would still love to do it to other people. Yeah. He considers everything and he is patient. And that's why his justice is always perfect. That's right. Unlike my justice would be. Yes. And again, Abraham was meant to hear these words. He fully understood what was about to take place. He understood that God was about to unleash his wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah. And that springs Abraham into action. But let's take a close look at his action. Abraham doesn't say, no, 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 you can't do that. That's not fair. The text says that Abraham drew near to the Lord. This was an intimate gesture in which Abraham came to the Lord humbly and reverently. And we see that in his words to him. 
Abraham was coming to the Lord in prayer. And what Abraham begins to do may look like bartering on the surface, but it's actually intercession. And that's exactly what he was supposed to do. The Lord said back in Genesis 18, 16, for I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Abraham points us to Jesus. Abraham was to be an intercessor for the godly, foreshadowing the perfect intercessor. And as Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 2, we who belong to God are also to be intercessors. And I'll read it. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. So you could say that the Lord was testing Abraham to see if the patriarch would step up and intercede. And of course he does. Ligonier Ministry says this, Abraham's intercession revealed the Lord's intent to save the cities if certain conditions were met and moved him to relent should 10 righteous men be found. God knew Abraham's prayer and his response long before they occurred. But he doesn't reveal this knowledge so that he might test the patriarch's sense of justice and move him to intercede. God's declaration of judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah invited Abraham to wrestle with him in prayer and see that his actions are not incidental to God's plans. See the end of their quote. And notice that Abraham never asked God not to destroy the wicked in Sodom. He knows that God's justice demands that the wicked be punished and condemned. He's only advocating for any righteous people in Sodom. In other words, he is asking God that if some of God's people are in Sodom, please don't destroy the entire city for their sake. And of course, in the front of his mind is his nephew Lot and his family. That's why he goes down to 10 righteous people. Right. So let's answer the questions we asked at the beginning. Why does God allow Abraham to go back and forth and not put him in his place like he does to Job? Well, as we said, Jesus revealed what he did to Abraham to test him. He wanted Abraham to step up and be an intercessor for the righteous. That wasn't the purpose of the situation with Job. So the two incidents, while there is some similarities on the surface, really aren't similar at all. And another question we asked. Does and can God, under certain circumstances, change his mind? The answer to that is no. God doesn't change his mind. As we said, he has perfect knowledge and can receive no new knowledge. So there's no reason for him to change his mind. Right, which sort of answers the next question. Is God ever willing to change his plan if we ask him to? And the answer is no. Since he doesn't change and his will doesn't change, however, that should not keep us from asking. As we saw, God wants us to come to him and ask things of him, and he does work out his plans and purposes through our prayers. It's a mystery for sure, but our prayers are never in vain. As Spurgeon once said, the blessing is in the asking. 
Right. And that leads to the next question we asked. Is it ever appropriate to barter with God? Well, first, we need to reiterate that Abraham wasn't bartering with God, although we kind of tease that he might have been. He wasn't. Bartering assumes both sides have something to offer. We have nothing to offer to God. So there's no bartering to be done. Abraham knew this. He is doing anything but haggling with God. He is throwing himself on God's mercy. Abraham says in the back and forth, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. So often we see Christians trying to barter with God, saying things like, Lord, if you just do this for me, I promise such and such. Yeah, it's easy to go there, you know, and we do see that a lot. And that's not only wrong, it's insulting to God for a few reasons. First, you are assuming that you have something of value to influence God with. God commands our obedience. It's not something to dangle in front of him to manipulate him to give us what we want. There's nothing that we can promise God that he hasn't already demanded of us. And it's not that he needs anything from us. Right. And you're right, Chris, we've all done it, but we need to stop doing it. (laughs) So we're talking to ourselves too. Yes. And the other reason it's insulting to God is because you're assuming that you and God are on equal footing. Bartering is done between two parties who have something the other needs and wants, but also between parties that are on somewhat equal footing. And that's never the case with us and God. Going to God with that attitude is anything but humble and reverent. It's actually mocking God. Yes. We can ask things of God, even plead for things of God. But like Abraham, we need to understand that we are completely at the mercy of God. We're dust and ashes, like he said. And we know that God's will, God's justice, God's mercy, and God's grace are perfect. We need to be willing to accept whatever he gives us. Despite Abraham's pleading, God completely destroyed Sodom. And that in no way affects Abraham's relationship with God. So this passage is not Abraham trying to haggle and negotiate with God. Instead, it's a humble servant of the Lord interceding for God's people, knowing that God's justice must be met. It's a man who's close enough to God to feel emboldened and confident to come before him with his requests, but who is also humble and reverent enough to accept whatever the Lord's will is. This passage is a good picture of how we should approach God in prayer. So Chris, what else does this passage teach us? Well, it shows us that God cares about us and cares about what we say to him. He isn't just humoring Abraham, letting him continue. If you find 50 righteous, if you find 40 righteous, you know, God is listening and genuinely cares that Abraham cares about the fate of the people of Sodom. When we come before the Lord in humility and reverence, there is nothing that we can't say to God. Yes, our prayers should not always be me focused. And as we mature in the faith, it should less and less. But that doesn't mean that if we're hurting or have something pressing on our minds that we can't bring it before the Lord. We absolutely can and we should. This passage also shows the importance of prayer. 
There's something transforming that happens to us when we pray. It's meant for us to grow more and more dependent upon God and to align our desires with his. Prayer is the vehicle that God uses to have intimacy with us. It's the vehicle he uses to grow us in our faith and grow us in our love for him. And prayer, along with the word of God, is our biggest and most effective weapon in spiritual warfare. Charles Spurgeon talked about prayer a lot. I just want to give a couple of quotes that he says from different things, but they're all about prayer. Prayer is doubt's destroyer, ruins remedy, the antidote to all our anxieties. There's another one. He who knows how to overcome with God in prayer has heaven and earth at his disposal. True prayer is the trading of the heart with God. And one more, although there's so many of them. Prayer girds human weakness with divine strength, turns human folly into heavenly wisdom, and gives to troubled mortals the peace of God. We know not what prayer can do. Good stuff. And as we said earlier, this passage shows that God's justice is perfect. Every single person in Sodom was wicked and in rebellion against God and deserved condemnation. The only righteous one or godly one was Lot, and the angels got him and his family out of there before the destruction. It wasn't like some innocents got caught up in the destruction. We see God's same patience and perfect judgment in the book of Jeremiah when he is telling Jeremiah of the coming destruction of the southern nation of Judah. God says in Jeremiah 5.1, run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon her. We talked a couple weeks ago about how many of the Israelites never repented despite the curses God had promised them for disobedience coming to fruition. And how even when God's final judgment comes, the wicked will still refuse to repent. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah serves as a warning to them. God is showing them what their fate will be for their continued rebellion and wickedness so that, as Paul says, they are without excuse. It also shows that no one who belongs to God will perish. Right. So this very odd passage of haggling between God and Abraham is actually anything but haggling. It's a beautiful picture of the goodness and grace of God and the faithful obedience of his servant Abraham. But before we end, we want to give a warning. This passage is descriptive, not prescriptive, meaning that this isn't a picture of how things always go down. God doesn't always make sure the righteous are ushered to safety and don't get caught up in the crossfire. We'll quote Ligonier Ministries again, and I'm quoting here. Just because God permits the cities to be spared, even if 10 righteous individuals are found, it does not follow that he is unjust when he allows holy men to die. The Lord often protects the faithful, but even covenant keepers like Stephen from the book of Acts suffer. John Calvin reminds us in his commentary on this verse that God's determination to preserve the city if 10 righteous people are found does not establish a perpetual rule that his people may never suffer. That's right. He will save them ultimately, spiritually, but physically we're not guaranteed. 
Absolutely. And that's a good place to end for today. The audio version of our new book, The Final Exodus, Deciphering the Book of Revelation, is now available. You may find that you recognize the people narrating. (laughs) You just might. Have a blessed day, everybody. 